Hey, we're back in action. Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed with the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra. I had an awesome break. Did you, Missy? I did. What'd you do? We went down to the coast for about five days. So it's beach time. You did have a vacation. We did have a vacation. You told us that you wanted to have that for Christmas. And I got it. Wow. How was your husband's graduation? It was good. You know, he walked. He didn't fall down. All important. (laughs) They're so boring. I mean, they're so important. (laughs) They're so meaningful, but they're very boring experiences. But we encourage you to go to yours. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Just uh, bring your iPhone. For the waiting. <laughs> so we're back. This is our first episode of the new year. I'm excited. Are you excited? I'm pretty excited. So today we are talking about lady detectives. And we actually plan to have one episode about female detectives. Real life and fictional. Literary, televised. But we have so many. We we're going to break it up. Two episodes. So yes. I hope you guys like solving crimes. Because we've got two episodes about Awesome ladies. In law enforcement. Yeah. And then we also have an episode planned of ladies who are breaking the law. We do. So, so we're going to cover both sides of this <laughs> issue. We are going to talk about some female criminals. I don't know. <laughs> I just trying to think of a funny word, but there isn't one. They just, they do bad things. I think right now on the list of episodes, it just says lady killers, which means ladies who are killers, not, you know, dudes who are lady killers. Anyway, so yeah, we're going to start with archetypes which i know is super fascinating but it's going to help guide our conversation uh about literature and literary characters and it's going to carry over into our next episode where we talk about female detectives on television so what is an archetyped english teacher so it is exactly what it sounds like it always refers to a character but it's a type uh but it's like an overarching that's the best way to think about it i don't know if that's the word origin but that's the best way to think about it so it's a super type of character and there are are character traits assigned to this type so the fool is an archetype the nurturing mother is an archetype okay the hero um who is good struggling against evil who has a personal setback and of course has a heroic flaw of some kind the archetype we're going to talk about today is the archetype of the consulting detective that was first, I don't know if he invented it, but the first instance I can find of it is in Edgar Allan Poe stories. The most famous of those would be The Purloined Letter. Did you ever have to read that? I read The Telltale Heart and The Raven. No. I don't know about this one. The Purloined Letter? I don't know about Somebody, it. Somebody, well. Or if I know about it, I have I, forgotten. I'll be honest, it's not the most fascinating story, but I do make my students read it sometimes because... Because you're mean. <laughs> Because it is a very good example of the archetype, and for as far as I know, one of the first instances of it. So the consulting detective is most, the most famous consulting detective is Sherlock Holmes. Yes, I'm aware of that. You've heard of him? Yes. Okay, that's good. There are many consulting detectives uh, on TV. Some are on TV right now. Isn't Uh, there a Sherlock Holmes on TV right now? Maybe. I feel like that's a show that's on right now. Well, there's the BBC Sherlock. I okay. don't. Th- it's not on right now. And then there's that show where Sherlock is a dude, but Watson is a lady. Yes. And it's Lucy Liu. I don't know if that show's still on. 
It's called Elementary. Okay, yeah. That's what um, I was thinking of. But like House, the TV show House, it follows the Sherlock Holmes consulting detective Even archetype. though he's a doctor. Right. Okay. He's still solving mysteries. The show Monk, did you ever see that? I'm aware of it. Okay, so that's following in it. But Agatha Christie's books, she has a series about a detective named Poirot and then a series about a detective named Miss Marple. We're going to talk about Miss Marple today. Jessica Fletcher for Murder, She Wrote. Okay. You know her. Yes. She's a consulting detective. So the character traits associated with the archetype is that they're not a police officer. That's why they're a consulting detective. Okay. None of these people are officially part of the system, but they're somehow associated with it. So they know police officers or they get hired like a private investigator. Yeah. They get hired by the police or a police officer asks them to help or they stick their nose in the police officer's business and kind of squeeze their way into the case. They have unconventional personal lives. Sherlock Holmes was very strange and also a drug addict. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Interesting. Opium lover. Obviously, Jessica Fletcher was not a drug addict, but you know, she had a peculiar personal life and they're for the most part single unmarried kind of not antisocial but definitely apart from society yes so a lot of the characters that we're going to talk about in fiction today and on our next episode all fall into this archetype of the consulting detective and what's interesting is the different ways that authors and tv show creators find to express the archetype and that's why we study archetypes so for a long time it was just guys right miss marple's kind of the first miss marple and nancy drew are the first kind of female literary detectives uh, so it's interesting to see how they change or alter our expectations so about when was edgar Allan poe writing the purloined letter 1844 okay and sherlock holmes was about 40 years later i think the 1880s and then Miss Marple, I don't think, came up until 1930s. Okay, so that's kind of interesting to me that Edgar Allan Poe was in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. Because law enforcement actually, as we, we think of it today, mm-hmm. hasn't been in existence all that long. It's only about 10 years before that, that police departments started forming. So that's probably why he was writing stories about it, right? Yes, it was a new thing. Because it would have been very uh, intriguing to read about. And it's also probably why his archetypal character is not officially a part of the police. Because, again, that's a relatively new thing. Mm-hmm. So he would have been sort of outside of that. So what did we have before? Oh, we just had, like, sheriffs, right? And jails. Right. And a lot of, um, like, private type of investigators. Okay. But the concept of a police department, the way that we think of it today, is really in existence in the 1830s. Interesting. Yes. And that's all over the country. Well, it starts in big cities, mm-hmm. and it's going to move out from there. Okay. Because you guys think a lot of people are living in the wilderness. There's no law enforcement whatsoever. <laughs> That's still true today. Yeah, you just kind of take <laughs> care of yourself. <laughs> and I wanted to jump in here and talk about something that I think most people probably know about, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. I know about that. Because you read books? I'm guessing I saw it in a movie. Uh, well, fantastic. Possibly some television programs. So this detective agency... Is started by an immigrant. Is his name Pinkerton? It is. It's Alan Pinkerton. That's also the name of a Weezer album. I bet you didn't know that. I did not know that. Ah. So in 1850, he starts this. And he starts it because police departments haven't fully developed yet. Okay. 
So there are things that they just cannot investigate yet. They don't have the manpower. They don't have the resources. But he could be hired by a private individual and he would have more time and effort to do those things. So he was a con- a real life consulting detective. Yes. Okay. He's a real life consulting detective or private investigator because that's the easier way to say that. And it's only six years into this business when he hires his first woman, Kate Warren. Nice. And she comes in and he thinks that she's applying to be a secretary. Of course. We're always going in to apply to be secretaries <laughs> yes. or housekeepers. So, yeah, actually, that was his second guess. <laughs> she was here there to clean. <laughs> and she says, no, I'm here because you put an ad in for a detective. And the ad didn't specifically say that you couldn't hire a female. Nice. And so he's a little intrigued by this woman. She's very young. She's 23. And he decides to give her a chance. Now, what's interesting here about her is that we really don't know a whole lot about her background. We think she was born in New York City. We think it was about 1833 she was born. But we have very, very few sources on this. Um, There is one source that says she's a widow, but there's another source that says that's just a story she told him to make him feel sorry for her and to get him to hire her. Yeah. And this is what, the 1850s, right? 1856 is when she walked in the office. So it was less conspicuous to be a widow than a single lady, right? Right. Well, it's more understanding why a widow would need a job. Oh, okay. Because she's not under the protection of her father's household anymore. And now her provider has died. Okay. So it would make more sense why Obviously. a widow is there than a yeah. single woman. Okay. Because if it's a single woman, he'd have to basically say, like, why aren't you with your parents? Yeah, where's your supervising male? Yes. Yeah, okay, got it. Where's your chaperone? <laughs> so after interviewing her, he thought that she might have a set of skills that male detectives just simply didn't have. And the first thing he thought of was she would be able to befriend the wives or girlfriends of suspects. She could get women alone and they would gossip See, the, and they would tell her secrets. On the one hand, I want to be like, that's kind of offensive. But on the other hand, I want to be like, that sounds like it's pretty true. Yes. And to be fair, when we talk about Miss Marple, she solves a lot of crimes by gossiping also. And he also thought that no one would suspect a girl. That's interesting. Yeah. So she flies under the radar. Okay. Which for historians is incredibly frustrating because it's amazing and it made her a good detective. Right. But it also means she didn't write anything down and we oh. can't study her. Oh. So it's, it's uh, what do you call it? Six in one, half dozen in the other. It's both good and frustrating. Double-edged sword? That, double, is that what yes, it is? I guess so. Possibly a catch-22? Maybe. No. So during her career for uh-huh. the Pinkerton Detective Agency, I made a list of all the uh, disguises she used. And her uh, cases oh, she cracked. This is going to be great. Oh, it's amazing. So she posed as a fortune teller. Awesome. As a southern belle. Is that a full disguise or is that just a dress? That's a full disguise because she got an accent to go along with it. Oh, man. I do a great <laughs> Alabama accent. I think we're going to hear this. She um, is also going to pose as a wife and a girlfriend numerous times. And the cases that she helps crack are a spy ring in Washington, D.C., a murder and a spy ring yes this she is during bust, the civil war she busts up a spy ring mm-hmm. okay a murder and bank robbery in mississippi and then the most famous case that she's associated with is the attempted assassination of abraham lincoln now this is not john wilkes booth because that was a successful attempt obviously this is a previous unsuccessful attempt so there are all these rumors that Lincoln is going to be assassinated during his inauguration. So Pinkerton is going to send Warren to Baltimore, and this is where she poses as a Southern Belle, and she gossips her way around town to the wives and girlfriends of all the likely suspects, 
and she figures out what the plot is going to be. Interesting. So then Pinkerton can go to Lincoln and give him all this information and say, hey, but if you want to avoid being shot, you should hire us as your personal security agents. Wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. So he wasn't hired. He wasn't officially hired yet. So he found out about a potential assassination and then said, Now hire us. We know someone's going to try and kill you and we know who it is. So now hire us. So now you should hire us to help you with that. I'm guessing this is pre-secret service. Yes. Okay. For sure. So Lincoln hires them. And to get through Baltimore to go to the inauguration, which is where they think the plot is most likely to happen, she convinces Lincoln to dress as her ailing brother. And then she goes to the train conductor and says, oh, my brother is super contagious. And if you put him with all these passengers, everyone's going to get sick. And so the train conductor says, oh, my God, no, that's not going to happen on my train. (laughs) So he puts them in their own compartment and lets them board privately by themselves. And that's what saves Abraham Lincoln that time from getting shot so uh, i mean and that's a strategy later employed by the secret service right yes absolutely so i mean not to dress a person up like an ill but to board them separately and to keep them away from the general public yeah so she kept lincoln safe and that's not for long but well not forever (laughs) but for that moment yeah and then her agency gets well known and she's eventually going to get promoted she is going to become the uh, head lead for all the female agents. So all the female agents that he hires, she's going to train them, and she's going to be the head of the Chicago Bureau of Female Detectives. So she's the test female. She is the trailblazer, I think okay. is a better way to well, no, say that. No, no, I mean, for, for Pinkerton, he hired her yes. as an experiment. And it worked. And so then he hired several other female detectives. He did, but because you know I'm a historian, right? Always a but. Yeah. So two buts. Um, (laughs) He did hire women, and that was great, but it's short lived, because when he dies, his sons inherit the company, and his sons think that there is no place for women in this company, and they disband the female agency and the female recruits. So then the company doesn't have women anymore. So after women have demonstrated effectiveness, yes, they decide there's no place for them. Right. Now, eventually they reverse that position, but it takes years for them to reach the conclusion that, oh, maybe our dad was right. I yeah. Mean, and the other not thing unexpected. that is not great is that she dies fairly young. She's going to die in 1867. How old was she? 35-ish. My God. If our sources are right, she's 35. So she got very ill, and Pinkerton actually stayed by her side the whole time she was ill, and she dies, and then she's buried in the Pinkerton family plot. So he really had a lot of respect and concern and care for her. Unfortunately, her name is misspelled on the tombstone. What? It's an oversight, and it's a a common thing that happened in the 1800s because there's not a standardized spelling yet, but the way that she wrote her name and the way that it is on the tombstone are different. So how did she spell her name? It depends on where she was in the country, actually. And what case she was on. But sometimes there's an E on the end of Warren and sometimes there's not. It's W-A-R-N-E uh-huh. or W-A-R-N, depending on what so on persona. The, so on the tombstone, it's worn like the verb, like there's, W-A-R-N, I'm warning you? Yes, there's no E. <laughs> and then her first name changed a lot, too, because she's Kate, she's Kitty, she's Cat. 
again, that could be part of disguising yourself, and that could just be she had nicknames mm-hmm. for certain people that used, but we don't really know. Why don't you really know? Because she didn't write it down because, herself? Yeah, that's the thing. Is historians have to have primary documents, and we have to have written records. The Pinkerton Agency had those records. But unfortunately, there's a Chicago fire called the Great Chicago Fire. That's a good name for it. It is. And most of their records burned. What's left of their records is transferred to the Library of Congress. But unfortunately, her file was not in there. So it probably burned. And obviously, she didn't keep a die or anything because she's a detective and a spy. Right. I mean, that's the last thing you want a spy doing is running around <laughs> writing down all of their cases. Let me have a list of my aliases. Yes. And uh, yeah, that seems like a great strategy. So the things that made her a good detective make her very frustrating for historians. So this is going to be something that you love to hear. Okay. But there's a novel. Oh, good. About her. It's very good. Okay. It's called Girl in Disguise. I have not heard of this. Well, I don't know what to tell you, except it's a book. It's about this very person, Kate Warren. Kate Warren? Yeah, so it's actually not a book that's been out for very long. It only came out in 2017, which I guess now is almost two years ago, because it's 2019, let's remember. And it's by Greer McAllister. And so it's a novelization, obviously, so it's not necessarily 100% historically accurate, but it is about Kate Warren, and I believe the saving of Abraham Lincoln is in the book. Oh, I just okay. I just downloaded it to my Kindle over the weekend, so I haven't started uh, really reading it. I read the first couple of pages. It's very, uh, it's very intriguing, so... I'm sure you're going to go read it because you love fiction, but... So much. So, so much. Other people like it. I know. All right. I want to um, talk about one more person before we jump back to you with fictional portrayals. Okay. And I want to talk to you about Isabella Goodwin. I've never heard of her. I'm not surprised. So Isabella Goodwin is born in Manhattan mm-hmm. about 1865. And she does... What do you what... mean about? Ish. Why don't we know these things for sure? The records are not great if people were not wealthy. Poor people didn't really count. So a lot of the... It's not like we have birth certificates. It's not like we kept government... Really? Not really. Huh. That really starts in the 1900s. So unless you were already coming from a wealthy family or there is some reason that your baptism maybe was recorded in a Catholic church... It's just a guess. It's just a guess. Fascinating. Yeah. So she's born in about 1865, and she does what women of the time are supposed to do. She gets married, her husband's a police officer, and they have six children. Uh, Two of those children ended up dying in infancy, so she has four surviving children. And then in 1896, she becomes a widow. My God. So she's... So two children dies infants. Yes. And then her husband dies. Yes. And then she has four children she needs to find a way to support all by herself. And so she thinks, well, my husband was a police officer. I can just go do that. In New York? In New York. Okay. So she is going to follow her husband into police work. When she's originally hired, and this is kind of cool for me, she's hired by Theodore Roosevelt. He's not president yet. He's the police chief. I feel like that name's familiar. Yeah, president. I'm just kidding. Okay. Thank you for knowing that. She is hired to be what they call a jail matron. I'm sorry. Can you guess what it is, Allegra? <laughs> Why does it have to be the word matron? 
I don't. What did she do? Did she feed people in jail? Well, she is the supervisor of women who have been jailed. Okay. Because obviously they're criminals because they haven't had good female influences in their life. I mean, that might be true, but. So her job is to, you know, both feed them, house them, clothe them as prisoners, but also to like fix their moral failings. Oh my God. So she's like a matrial figure in their life. Maternal. Maternal figure in their life. <laughs> I'm leaving that in there, by the way. Thanks. We <laughs> cut out when you make mistakes. So this is going to be well and good for a few years. And then the police department realizes that they kind of need women to help them solve crimes. And so they're going to ask her to go undercover. She does that. She's going to help solve a few big cases. And then she gets promoted to be the first ever female detective. First ever in New York. First ever. First ever that we can verify in the United States to get the title detective of a police department. Okay, okay. So not a private investigator, not a sheriff's deputy, but detective in a department. Wow. Yes. So that's a big deal. Her salary doubles when she becomes a detective. I don't know. <laughs> that's a little bit crazy. Yeah, because you were already doing police work, right? And mm-hmm. so it's not just a promotion. It is literally doubling wow. her annual income. Wow. So uh, she does that for a few years. Very successful. In 1921, this is just fun for me, so I'm going to tell y'all. She married a man who was 30 years younger than her. Nice. Kept her own last name. Nice. And decided that just because she was married doesn't mean she needs to stop working. Okay, that's good. So she also continues her career. Wow. And this was scandalous for so many people because they thought, oh, you're a widow and you have these four children. It's fine if you have to go get a job. And this is just after World War One. Yeah. And she's like, I'm just going to work. Yeah. I've already been doing it. What does it matter if I got married? Okay. So I really, I like this lady. I think yeah. she's cool. But about that time is when we start seeing this rise of uh, detective literature or women <laughs> solving crimes in literature. Right? You good at talking about books. <laughs> you real good. <laughs> so, yes, it is, by the way. Uh, 1930 is the year two literary female detectives debuted two who are still famous to this day nancy drew i actually read a lot of those and miss marple never heard of it how have you never heard of it i it's maybe i've heard of never it, read it but i don't i don't know anything about it her it's, it's not her. a hit well, it isn't it because it's not a real person. It's a fine literary figure. Fine. I will tell you. I will tell you if you're interested in female detectives and you want a little bit more of a modern approach to this archetype of the consulting detective, there are two female versions of Sherlock Holmes uh, and novel series that have been written by female authors in the last few years. One is a series by Lori King and Mary Russell is the female version of Sherlock Holmes in that case. And then the other is the Charlotte Holmes series. And I think in that case, she's like a granddaughter or great-granddaughter of Sherlock Holmes. And that is by Brittany uh, Cavallaro. I've read both. I've read books from both. I haven't read both series in their entirety. And they're very, I mean, they're fun. I don't know that I would say that they're like literary life-changing pieces of work, but they're very fun and they... Uh, fit women into the archetype in a more modern way. But yeah, Miss Marple and Nancy Drew, same year, 1930. Which one do you want me to talk about first? Let's do Miss Marple because I don't know anything about it. So you do know who Agatha Christie is? I do know Agatha Christie, yes. So why do you know Agatha Christie? 
Um, I know Agatha Christie because she's a pretty interesting character in real life. So you know her, like, historically? Yeah, I know her historically. Can you name a book by Agatha Christie? Miss Marple? I just told you that one. (laughs) But I can name it. They just they just made a Who movie. Who was president in 1930? Uh, no, no Google. I'm not Googling it. Uh, exactly. Uh, Roosevelt? No. I don't know. Who was it? Hoover. That's what I was going to say. Oh, sure. So you can't name him an Agatha Christie book. I cannot. What about Murder on the Orient Express? Have you heard of that? Oh, I have. She wrote that. That's her. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. That's uh, that's the male detective, Hair Care. Uh, it's Hercule Poirot. He's Belgian, so I'm not sure about the pronunciation. But uh, yeah, Miss Marple's the same author. She's writing those books about the same time period, but it's just a very different approach to the archetype. So Miss Marple is an older woman. And in the book, other characters often see her and refer to her as, you know, being like an old lady. Um, so kind of like a murder she wrote? Yes. She has a lot in common with Murder, She Wrote, actually. She's a very good, astute detective. And so she does the the thing that all of these consulting detectives do, which is they have these epiphanies where they are putting together two or three disparate pieces of information and making this connection that other people aren't able to make or that it would take other people a lot longer to make. Miss Marple herself was never married. Uh, and she has no close family. The only family member that ever really gets referred to is her nephew, who kind of who comes to visit her sometimes. And there's a book where she's on a Caribbean vacation, and he's paid for her to go on this Caribbean vacation. Do you think that that made more her more like palatable to the American public? Because we would think like, oh, if she's a wife and mother, shouldn't she be doing household stuff and caring for the children? But if she doesn't have any close family, then it's okay for her to go solve crimes. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it's an interesting choice to make her have been never married instead of a widow. That's true. Because it could have easily been, you know, a widow with grown children. Right. So I think that was intentional, but I couldn't confirm that. She solves super challenging crimes, uh, just like all the other detectives that we would talk about. She's very quick-witted. She's very clever. She's very funny. I mean, I don't know that you're going to laugh out loud a lot, but you might chuckle to yourself or smile. 1930s humor. Yeah, so she and she follows the archetype, right? She's not a professional detective, but she does know police officers, and sometimes they ask her to help or intervene. Um, she makes connections that other people can't, things that seem impossible, she figures out. Um, now, because she's an older lady, I'm guessing she's not using like her sexuality to solve crimes. <laughs> no, but she is taking the same approach, which is to use something that people a reason people would underestimate you and use it to her advantage. So instead of using her sexuality, she's using the fact that she's being viewed as an old lady. So she'll sit outside knitting Mm. and get people to tell her all kinds of things and act like she's just a gossiping old lady. And so she'll take this piece of information person A gives her and this piece of information person B gives her. And then, you know, she'll act like a helpless old woman and she just needs help. And then she'll get people to go... Um, get new information for her. So in the in the Caribbean mystery, she befriends a doctor, and so she gets him to give her all this medical information that she uses to figure out a case. And he just thinks that she's like an old bored lady uh, who just wants company. And so he 
is talking to her kind of out of charity or pity. Oh, okay. And she knows that, and she's using it to her advantage to solve a mystery. I mean, they're very 1930s mystery books, so they're not a lot of action and suspense, and there's not like a bunch of slashing happening the way that more modern books are. And there's usually one murder per book as opposed to, you know, some kind of sensational murder spree. And probably most interesting is the fact that Miss Marple herself is not married, not youthful, a female... And she's the, you know, the lead character in all the books and that she's solving the crimes that men can't solve. So now tell me about Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew also debuted in 1930s. And you've read Nancy Drew books. I have. Did you read them as a child? Uh, Yeah. I mean, like, maybe 10, 11, 12, somewhere around there. Not, like, super little. Okay. Did you like them? I did. My grandmother, like, collected the whole Nancy Drew series. And so whenever we would go over there, that's what we had to read. Okay. So the Hardy Boys were very popular. Have you heard of the Hardy Boys? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the Hardy Boys were very popular. And girls were reading Hardy Boys books. And so the editors or the publishers said, you know, we want a book for girls. And so... Isn't that the same idea behind Little Women? Yes. We just need to market this book to girls. So write me a girl story. Yes. It's exactly the same thing. And uh, what's interesting is that Nancy Drew was appealing to boys who wanted to read stories because they're adventure stories mm-hmm. and they're interesting. I mean, it's obviously not inconceivable that a, a person who's a male would be interested in a story where the lead character is a female. Although, you know, the prevailing consensus is that guys don't want to watch shows about ladies or read books about ladies, but they do. Right. right. And that's why it took forever to get Dr. Who to be a woman. So, the books are written by Mildred Benson, but she uses the pen name Carolyn Keene. And I don't know why they have her use a pen name. It could be because they wanted the author of Nancy Drew to be named Carolyn Keene, and they thought the actual person doing the writing could be interchangeable. I'm not sure. Oh, that's an interesting idea, though. Yes. So, obviously, because Nancy Drew is very famous, there's a lot of research about her. So, I found a quote about her. The importance of the character Nancy Drew to juvenile literature both as one of the first independent female role models for young girls, and then as the first serial character in juvenile literature to retain her popularity in print for almost 83 years. So she's important because she's a role model to girls. Girls got to read a book with a female main character who does action and adventure. She's not just at home knitting and sewing. But also she stays popular, and she stays in print for 83 years. Uh, And... Another quote is, in a world where few women worked outside the home, children were expected to be seen and not heard, and the father's authority went mostly unchallenged. Nancy Drew was definitely not the normal girl. Would you say that's historically accurate for the time period? I would. And I think it's really interesting that this is happening in the 30s because we have the Great Depression. Yeah. And so you have escapism as a huge part Mm -hmm. of American culture. And so this is probably feeding into that a little bit as well. Girls in kind of rough situations yeah. could imagine themselves being Nancy Drew and having all of these adventures and solving crimes. Oh, yeah, and- that's a good point. Both of those quotes come from a book called A Sleuth of Our Own, A Historical View of Nancy Drew, Girl Detective by Jeannie Ferris. See, I might read that. That sounds fun. <laughs> you know, whatever, you, if, it, <laughs> if you like it. So she drove a convertible. She drove a boat. Um, she fixes, you know, 
sprained ankles or sprained wrists. You know, she can fix cars. She can find missing documents and she can solve mysteries. But she also like quotes Archimedes and, you know, knows. So she's intellectual. She's very well read, apparently. But she also, you know, has the action sequences and she can be very resourceful. So she had a lot of uh, different powerful traits. She wasn't just like a brainiac or uh, a good crime solver or very strong. She's kind of all three of those things. So Nancy Drew for me is a case of fiction leading the way for a real life. Mm-hmm. Because we do start to see women enter law enforcement mm-hmm. after World War II. And that would have been girls who grew up reading Nancy Drew. So so you think maybe girls read Nancy Drew as children or as young adults. And, and it then... allowed them the possibility to imagine themselves as police officers. Interesting. That's my take on it. Okay. And I have one historical example that may feed into this. Of course you do. Of course I do. So I want to tell you about Josephine Serrano Collier. Okay. So she was born in the 1920s, would have been growing up in the 1930s, and in 1946, right after World War II, becomes the first Latina Los Angeles Police Department officer. Nice. So there were 200 women that applied. Mm -hmm. Only nine make it through the academy. Wow. This first year, they offered women the chance to become police department officers. Yeah. They didn't get their own graduation. They actually didn't get a graduation at all. Why? They went through the exact same training. They got no graduation because they're girl police officers. So they're not real police officers. They don't need a graduation. Seriously? Seriously. And when she applied, she was engaged to be married. And when her husband found out she was applying to, fiance, found out she was applying to be a police officer, he left her. He didn't want to be married to a female police officer. Her family. Because she was too awesome? (laughs) Basically. Her family disapproved of her career choice because they didn't want her to join the police work. They didn't think it was a good occupation for a woman. And this is also at a time of really heightened tension between the Latino community and Los Angeles police. But she is, like I said, the first. I feel like you said that like it's in the past. And I feel like that's still true. Um, The tension here is historically high because there had been a series of riots in the Hispanic community during World War II. The Zoot Suit Riots? The Zoot Suit Riots. I knew that. Good for you. Okay. So she is going, like I said, become the first female Latina police officer. She has to walk her beat in heels. What? And a skirt. And she is not allowed to carry a gun. What? Yeah. Why? It's just not appropriate, Allegra, for a woman in a public position to wear pants. We've talked about this before. And it's sure not appropriate for her to carry a gun. In the 1940s? Yeah. Uh, But she stays on the police force until the 1960s. And by the end of it, she's allowed to carry a gun. She ends up retiring in 19... So she only had to be a cop for 20 years before they (laughs) let her carry a weapon? I think it was like 10. Okay. Okay. Um, So then she has a back injury and she retires. And the reason I think she's so important is that she just passed on in 2014. Wow. So we think of this as being, I think of this as being kind of far in the past, right? Yeah. But she was alive until just five years ago. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. So like our first generation of female police officers are still with us today. Wow. Some of them are. So modern police departments, you said, came about in the 1840s? 1830s. 1830s. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so we had the first 
female cops around 18 about, about 100 years about later. 100 years later okay i was trying to do the math yeah about about par for the course yeah sounds right sounds right <clears throat> do you want to hear about modern policing and gender i don't know do i because you know whenever you say do you want to hear about then it's not good i think i'll say what i've said so many times it's getting better could be worse that's like saying it's a less bad train wreck. That's true. So it's still a train wreck. But we're getting better. Okay. Tell me how. So in 1972, Congress passed an amendment to the Civil Rights Act that prohibits state and local agencies from discrimination based on gender, and that includes police departments. So police departments are basically told you cannot eliminate somebody just because they're female. You have to give them the same chance to try to join. There are 1972, we finally... Women are people. Yeah. Women are people. At the exact same time, we have the Revenue Sharing Act and Crime Control Act that both said that they could withhold federal funds from departments that discriminated. So we have the carrot and the stick, right? Okay. You are now allowed to treat women equally, and you now (laughs) have to treat women equally. Okay. So during this time until 1980, women are being... If not actively and enthusiastically recruited, at least not turned away. So women start joining police departments. And we're going to see a number of studies that start in the 1960s and 70s, and some of them are carried on until today, as we have 40 years worth of data now, Mm -hmm. that we can evaluate how women have done in law enforcement. Okay. So this is what we know from all of these studies. Women in patrol positions... Mm -hmm tend to be more effective than male counterpoints. You can just stop there. (laughs) In avoiding violence Uh and defusing situations from becoming violent. Okay. So women are less likely to resort to violence in a confrontation. And less likely to escalate a situation. Yes, exactly. Women are less likely to engage in serious unbecoming conduct and are also less likely to be named in a lawsuit in a police department. Interesting. Yeah. And that difference is eight times. Women are eight times less likely to be named specifically in a lawsuit. So have we considered not allowing men to be police officers? <laughs> I don't think anybody has floated that. Okay. And I'm then just we, kidding. These, just in case that's when somebody turned on the podcast. And we also find that citizens show the same level of respect and favorable attitudes for officers of either gender. Really? Yes. So there's no... Uh, difference in perception because people tend to see the uniform Mm -hmm. and not the person okay until a situation gets risky or violent and then they see more of the person not the uniform so women have gone into these roles here's my butt but in the united states nationwide women only make up 13 percent of all law enforcement do we have any research about what the culture and climate is we do have research on that and it kind of mirrors the research we have on the military So really terrible is what you're saying. (laughs) Women faced um, higher levels of discrimination and harassment Mm -hmm. in typically male-dominated fields. Uh And this is true of police enforcement, law enforcement, as well as the military. Yes. So So that's why, perhaps, part of the reason why not a lot or not as many women want to become police officers. But this is starting to change. Okay. So since the 1980s, we've had women move into leadership positions within law enforcement. Okay. So Penny Harrington becomes the first woman 
chief of police for a major city, and that's going to be in Portland, Oregon. When is that? 85. Are we counting Portland, Oregon as a major city? Yeah. I mean, it's well known, right? Okay. I mean, it's not New York City, but still. Okay. And then in 1994, Beverly Harvard is going to become the first African-American woman to be a chief of police for Atlanta, Georgia. That's definitely a large city. That's a huge city. So those women rising up into higher positions, it does a couple of things. It kind of like what Nancy Drew did, put it in the imagination of other young women that sure, they so could go into that yeah, career. Representation. And then they also open the door for women behind them. Yeah. And I would imagine make it less comfortable for people to harass women or discriminate against women or treat fellow off female officers poorly. So it's got to change the climate if we have women in leadership positions. Exactly. Um, Chuck Wexler, who is the executive director of Police Executive Research Forum. I'm sorry. Did you say his name was Chex Wexler? Chuck Wexler. Okay. Okay. Uh, says women have a profound impact on the culture of policing. They bring their own set of skills to a traditionally male-dominated culture, and that is very helpful. And what he is talking about there, and this is something that the Department of Justice has also found. That is very mild praise, by the way. <laughs> it is. They bring their own set of skills, and that is very helpful. But what he's talking about here is domestic violence and sexual assault. Okay. Having female police officers deal with that type of crime is incredibly, incredibly helpful. So the Department of Justice has found that when male and female officers are dispatched to talk to victims of rape or sexual assault, Mm -hmm. the female officers are less likely to dismiss those claims as being unfounded. Interesting. So having a female officer be the first person that takes the report is ultimately more likely to result in a conviction than if a male officer is the first one to take the report. Because the female officer says, this is a true crime. We need to investigate. We need to follow through. Whereas if the first responding officer is a male, and I'm not saying all male. Obviously, but we're just saying on average. On average. If that person says this is not a founded, legitimate crime, the investigation stops. It goes no further. So more likely to get a conviction and to see something all the way through to conviction. Yes. If the very first responding officer is is a a female. Mm -hmm. Uh, Women... Police officers also, just in general, reduce the rates of violence against women, sexual assault, rape, and homicide. So just by the fact that you hire more female officers, cities see those crimes go down. Really? Yes. And the reason being is a woman who is in a domestic violence situation is less likely to call if she knows the only responding people are going to be male. Sure. So if you don't call, if you don't start that ball rolling, it can escalate into yeah. sexual assault, serious uh, violence, or death. Wow. Yeah. So all of this, just just the fact that you hire women yeah. begins to lower those statistics. Yeah. Um, from the United Nations, we found that the protection for children, children grow up in happier and safer uh, environments if you hire women because it's the same reason. And that if you hire women as a police officers. Okay. So this is a, this is not just a no, this is national global. phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The United Nations is saying the more female law enforcement officers there are, the safer a place is for children. Yes. And the UK from the National Center for Women Policing also has the same results from their study from 2015, I believe. So I'm going to ask again, no one has considered 
making police forces just exclusively female. No, and I don't think that's a solution either, right? Because there's room for both genders. Of course. But the UK, I will say, on average, has 28% of all their police departments as being female, where we only have 13%. 13? Yes. So 13. The good news is that's room to improve. Well, anything's room to improve. <laughs> we, we can make leaps and bounds in, for improvement, though. 13% of police officers are female. And, you know, part of this, I think, has to go back to the Department of Justice um, because they were published a report under Obama that gave guidelines to what police departments need to do. And in this report, they spent 10 pages talking about hiring for diversity, hiring for diversity in your police officers and especially in patrol officers. Mm -hmm. They spent 10 pages talking about diversity, but only about one paragraph was dedicated to the idea of women as being included in that idea of diversity. But it just hasn't permeated yet that idea that diversity should also include gender it's just slow i know we're coming the the starting line is uh, an assumption in the 1800s that women couldn't do the job like physically couldn't or mentally couldn't do the job and so not very long ago 200 years ago right 150 ish okay Right, we're we're so we're recovering from a place where people thought it's not even possible. It's preposterous. Right. It's laughable. So, in 150 years to go from that to having verified research saying not only are women effective, but in some situations they're more effective. They're the most effective. Yes. And overall, having female officers on your force benefits your community. Yes. So we are improving. Yes, absolutely. But we're still at 13 percent. Yes. And we still have... And that I should say, that's a nationwide average. So your town and community are... might be... And the smaller your town is, the more likely your number is higher. That's interesting. Well, if I only have 100 officers and I hired 15 women, I already beat the national average, right? True. Yeah. So just because the numbers are lower, your percentage is higher. And, and you're more likely to know people personally. And we know if you know people personally, you're less likely to think of them in a discriminatory way. Exactly. So, I mean, I think it's good. I mean, I don't think that where we are is good, but I think that the the momentum is good. I think so, too. And I think all of these studies that have been coming out really since about 2004, mm-hmm. all saying the same thing adds credence to that idea that we have to move in this direction. Mm-hmm. And these are not small studies. These are coming from the Department of Justice, the Police Executive Research Forum. These are pretty big deal organizations yeah. that are starting to say these things. But, but in I mean, we also have to address the culture and climate of the workplace. Absolutely, for sure. And I mean, I'm basing my knowledge of culture and climate, uh, obviously on television programming. <laughs> As one does. And books I read. Of course. But, I mean, I I have done a lot of research on the culture and climate of the military for women. And so if it's similar, then it's not good. But I think you have to keep in mind the progress that we've made. We go from women are not even possibly capable of doing this job (laughs) to, hey, actually, they might be okay at this and maybe even good. Yeah. Yeah. So you might know this, but... We have a very vast 
literary tradition of women writing books about female detectives. Mm-hmm. So Agatha Christie and Nancy Drew were two examples of literary detectives being written by women. But we, I mean, that tradition continues today. Most notable are books about Bones. Have you seen that TV show, Bones? I think I've heard of it. Okay. So, it's, I mean, it's not on anymore. So that's okay. That's, so that's okay. But uh, there's a real-life forensic anthropologist named Kathy Rikes. Okay. Who was a trailblazer in the field of forensic anthropology. And I think for a long time was the most reputable and well-regarded forensic anthropologist in the country. And that's a very cool combination of being a detective and being a scientist because you have to use both skill sets to effectively do that job. So Kathy Reichs is a very impressive female detective, also impressive female scientist, also writes books about an alter ego. So it's they're based on her life and her cases and her experiences, but they're fictionalized and kind of sensationalized. And the character in the books is Temperance Brennan, and the series is the Bones series. So the word bones okay. appears in the title of all the books. Okay. So like sifting through the bones or something like that. But she's writing books based on her own experiences and she's worked for federal agencies. She's worked for law I mean local law enforcement agencies. Uh, and she's worked for government, I mean, like mass graves and things like that, trying to trying to f- find identities and find causes of death and find out how old bones are and all kinds of things like that. So it's a historical uh, of historical significance, but also of literary merit because the books are always bestsellers. And then, of course, they made a TV show based on them as well. And yeah, it's kind of that idea of representation again, right? The more you see something, the Mm -hmm. more it becomes normalized. Yeah. So the more that we read and see these women doing these jobs, even if it's fiction, the more likely it is that somebody in high school watching that might be going, hey, I'd like to do that. Absolutely. It's very cool to read from this person's perspective because, again, she is putting things together, picking up clues and making connections that other people around her could not or did not make. But she's also like in a lab coat doing scientific tests using her various advanced degrees. So it's a very awesome kind of representation. And I mean, hundred I don't know how many books, dozens of books. Another that you may know about is Sue Grafton. Have you ever heard of her? I haven't read it. But I've seen them at the bookstore. You've you've definitely seen them at the bookstore. So they're the Alphabet series. Uh, the detective's name is Kinsey Malone, Milhone. And so each book is like A is for alibi. Okay, yeah, got M is, it. M is for murder. Um, that one seems obvious. <laughs> I can't remember what all of them are, but so it's always a letter and then is for something. And the author unfortunately died before the series ended i think she got to like x oh wow yeah and they've had like a pen writer or ghost writer completing it i don't know if they've actually finished it oh okay um but they're a very famous series i remember my mom reading them i know that they're very popular and you always see them at bookstores yes 
And so, because you you know you see them at bookstores because they're all lined up kind of in alphabetical order. Right. So the spines are like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I, I remember them being like pretty brightly colored too. Yeah, they're all very, you know, like red, blue, it like draws yellow, your attention. Orange, green, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very glossy covers and always bestsellers. So what? So I guess what I would say is you're talking about forward moving progress in real life. Yes. And I'm saying that the literary traditions, going back to Edgar Allan Poe's archetype and the kind of innovation that Agatha Christie and Miss Marple and Nancy Drew books had, those kinds of prog- that kind of progress continues in terms of literature. We've talked in episode three about scary stories yes. by women. And some of those are actually, I mean, Tana French's books are scary and creepy, but those are, those all have uh, detectives and a lot of them feature uh, female detectives prominently. And so that's a more literary take on a female detective story. And so if you want genre fiction, if you want a literary take, I mean, we have a lot of women writing a lot of mystery books for and about women. And this, I mean, this is a huge field. I don't think that people really know how many books by women about female detectives there are, but there are so very many. Well, I think this is a case of fiction and real life both fueling each other. Absolutely. So I think as we see more women move into these fields, we're going to get more fictional portrayals, mm-hmm. and those fictional portrayals encourage people to do it in their real life. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm glad to see that there's a lot of those books. Yeah. Because I think that leads to more people becoming invested in this, interested in this, and maybe picking this as a career. And I think and I think the representation and empowerment is important, even to a person like me who has zero chance of ever becoming a detective of any kind. Zero. Z- none. I almost said none. That's not a thing. None. But that kind of representation is important to me. It's very important, you know, that we have female scientists, that we have female detectives, and then we have women writing books. That in and of itself is an important kind of representation. And I mean, the other thing is the diversity in terms of what kind of book, what style of book. I mean, there's something called a cozy mystery, which is like a mystery murder mystery that's guaranteed not to be creepy or scary and guaranteed and it's like guaranteed to have a happy ish ending yeah a happy conclusion and so murder she wrote kind of goes into that vein if you can think about it's a cozy mystery like someone died and that's never good but the story itself has a more positive feel and so there's like tea shop mysteries and scrapbooking murder mysteries and bakery mysteries but there are, you know, women of color writing these books, and we have female detectives in literature who are not all white, who are not all young. Uh, so there's a lot of diversity in the field, and I think that representation is important for people who want to envision themselves as future police yes. officers, but also just for women who want to read books about, you know, kick-ass women. And then next time we can talk all about how television <laughs> takes this and just makes n- it a perfect utopia you have no idea how excited i am to talk about female detectives on television i what? am going to research it okay so i'll be prepared by the time we talk fine i'll take the historical ones <laughs> so any tv show that pre-1980 came on, came on before we were alive yes i will cover those okay that's fine you're allowed <laughs> thanks 
So, Misty, what's next in your lady life? Next in my lady life is I am going to go binge a bunch of old TV shows about lady detectives. And I am super excited. <laughs> I'm imagining so much 1970s sexism. It's going to be hilarious. It's going to be a lot. Yeah. It's going to be, and it's going to be a lot of plaid skirts. Yeah. It, it, the fashion's going to be bad. Or good. Real bad. I don't know. I like it. What's next in your lady life, Allegra? So I think I'm going to go read A Girl in Disguise because I downloaded it on my Kindle and uh, I want to read more about the Lady Pinkerton. Uh, but I did. I got a lot of books for Christmas, actually, about women. I got uh, a book about women in Texas in the Civil War. Ooh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The clue on that present, my parents put clues on all our Christmas presents. The clue on that present was actually to Allegra and Misty. Oh, yay. So I guess I'll share the book with you. Thanks. You probably like it way more than me. It's nonfiction and it's about history and war. I'm in. Of course you are. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and my New Year's resolution is to watch more TV. Hey, good for you. And I'm Allegra, and my New Year's resolution is actually to read more books, but novels. You should read at least one historical book this year. I'll try. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Which is obviously very great. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at ProfessHers. That's at P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S. Or by email, same address, ProfessHers at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember... Empowered women empower women.